You know, it's pledge drive season. It's Slate Podcasts. And later this episode, you'll be hearing about why you should support our show by joining Slate Plus. And then after that, a counterproposal to convince you, if you are a Slate Plus listener, to immediately unsubscribe. No, I'm not going to do that, though I am committed to fairness and balance. If you would rather skip this whole pledge drive thing, just join Slate Plus now. You won't hear any of it. Okay, here's our show. It's Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the White House podium from the podium that we paid for said, I'm not even going to get into it because she said some nonsense. And she always says some nonsense. There is this cycle. She says some nonsense about the media. The media fact checks it. It's wrong. The Trump base chooses their own reality. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Trump wins. No thanks. I'm out on that. But there was this one little bit as part of some of this back and forth between the White House and the media, which was about the White House and the media. There was this one little bit, and it concerned a video that Jim Acosta of CNN posted. And he took a video of Trump supporters at a rally in Florida, and the Trump supporters were all screaming and cursing at the media. It was exactly how a wrestling crowd would have reacted to Rowdy Roddy Piper in 1986. And personally, this is a digression, but I think maybe Jim Acosta should just lean into it, you know? Do the uh, hand wave and cup the ear, I can't hear you louder, get the crowd pumped up, maybe have one or two catchphrases to really get them riled up. Crowd size, crowd size, maybe wear a kilt. I'm saying really own this Rowdy Roddy thing. Him and Sergeant Slaughter, you know, the heels are always more popular than the faces. Anyway, part of the video of this Jim Acosta shoot with all the people cursing at him and giving him the middle finger because he was a representative of CNN, there was actually a baby wearing a CNN sucks onesie. <laughs> a onesie, the, the snap-on-the-bottom baby outfit, and it said CNN sucks on it. This wasn't even Roger Ailes' love child wearing the baby, just a civilian. So I researched, where does one buy a CNN sucks onesie? Found the site. Quote, we print the highest quality CNN sucks onesies on the internet. Be unique. Shop CNN Sucks Onesies, created by independent artists from around the globe. I, I could just picture the commercial. A craftsman in Ecuador, a glass blower in Laos, a weaver in Guatemala, a lapidary in Amsterdam. Move aside, because we have independent CNN Sucks Onesie makers in Jacksonville, Florida. Sun streaming through a studio. A white-haired man is bent over a work desk. He pulls a thread high in the air, bites it off with his teeth. He's wearing a jeweler's loop. He looks up at the camera. At Blandino and Sons, we handcraft every CNN Sucks Onesie with centuries-old craftsmanship handed down by my father and his father before him. If it says CNN Sucks and it's a onesie, you know a Blandino personally worked on it. We shall sell no CNN Sucks onesie before it's time. Cut to, and we're back in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. 
on the show today. I spiel about a local radio scandal that's uh, sadly hilarious, sad and hilarious. But first, he was a former undersecretary of the Treasury. And if that doesn't whet your appetite a lot, he knows a lot about Jimmy Carter. He is one of those wise men of Washington here with wisdom from 40 years ago that is just as relevant today. Okay, a little less relevant today, but really relevant to today. It's Stuart Eisenstadt, who has written a massive new book about the presidency of his boss, Jimmy Carter. Come back with my show. It is my show. Now we've become a Mobius strip of Mike talking about his own show. But what I'm doing is I'm interrupting the gist proper for Slate Plus Pledge Drive Improper. And I'm joined by the editorial director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Gabe, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. You know, Gabe, listeners, just listeners, Gabe is overqualified for this position. Aren't you a published author of many novels? No, I'm a published author of one novel, but more to the point, I'm the editorial director of Slate Plus Slate's paid membership Can we talk about your novel for a second? I just want to know about your novel. The main thing is you can find my novel very, very affordably, thanks to the magic of remaindering. You can find my novel (laughs) for approximately one penny plus postage on Amazon.com. Would it be considered a literary novel? It's a a tragic comic literary novel. Tragic comic. That's like two genres. Think about that potential Slate Plus listener. The guy. We got a literary novelist running the show because he knows where you live. We know where you live. And we're going to give you the content that meets you exactly where you live if you join Slate Plus. What else do they get, Gabe? Well, if you're a member of Slate Plus, I'll throw in a remaindered copy of my novel for you. Really? Absolutely. Do you have free. any in boxes still I, in the I, house? I have many, many boxes. <laughs> if you send me postage and join Slate Plus, I will send you a copy of my 2013 novel for free. Uh, <laughs> more to the point, though, and probably more what you're looking for, you'll get extended ad-free episodes of all of Slate's podcasts. You'll get more on the website, including extra questions from our advice columnist, Dear Prudence. But most importantly... You will support this show and the other Slate podcasts and Slate content that you care about. If you listen to Mike's show every day, if it gives you information that you need about the news and you appreciate his takes on things and and this is something that you value, it's part of your media diet that you care about, you should be supporting it. You should be sending us money to help us make it, to help us keep making it, and to help us make it the way we want to make it and the way Mike wants to make it. You know, Gabe, that was a remarkably funny and tender pitch. Just like Janet Maslin said of your novel, it's remarkably funny and tender as a book. But aside from that, what is? I've often gone on to uh, the ask prudence yeah. and then you'll get the question yeah. and then they'll say for the answer join slate plus uh, and i know that's a little manipulative yeah. but it's also you really want the answer sure. to the question I would hope of so. the lady yeah. who is worried her aunt is going to feed her kids spoiled meat yeah. because you could okay so the situation was a woman's aunt comes and visits and she brings spoiled meat in a cooler and insists not that cool a cooler and insists on cooking it so obviously the answer is you can't let the kids eat the spoiled meat, but what do you say to the aunt? And so you're saying, just tell the aunt, no spoiled meat in the house. But then the letter writer said, she has some cognitive problems. Yeah. And that added that added a right. little level wrinkle. Of, le- level of emotional complexity. And I really didn't know where DM Ortberg was going to go. Yeah. No, how would you know unless... There's one way to know. Wait, are you not... A- 
Anyway, if you, like Mike Pesca, are not yet a member of Slate Plus, slate.com slash gist plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You'll never hear a pledge drive like this again. Sign up today. You've never heard a pledge drive like this before, but Slate Plus is the way to do it. It's $35 for the first year. And let me just say, the name of the book is The Unknowns, and its, uh, its protagonist was Eric Muller. It's true. So do you feel close to the Mueller investigation as a result? <laughs> uh, well, it's Mueller with just one E, not the, the But two pronounced e. the same way. I think that's right, yeah. 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 Okay. All right. I mm. think we've got to everything we need to get to. Slate.com slash gist plus. Please listen to published novelist Gabe Roth. President Jimmy Carter had an eventful four years as president. He's frequently mentioned and probably unfairly maligned for one or two moments where, if you really examine it, he showed his humanity in a way that we say we all demand from presidents, but when they do, we punish them. Statements like, I've lusted in my heart, and speeches like the malaise speech, which, by the way, never included the word malaise, and was greeted with a lot of approval at the time. In a almost 1,000 page, yeah, it stops at 999. So in an almost 1,000 page chronicle of the Carter presidency, Stuart Eisenstadt is here. He was President Carter's chief White House domestic policy advisor. He has served many roles in many Democratic administrations. He's one of those wise men of Washington and was in the room where it happened. Hello, Mr. Eisenstadt. How are you? Mike, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what I wanted to do was talk about two aspects of the Carter presidency. One I literally never heard about before reading your book, and one is in the news tangentially. So the first one is the deregulation of natural gas. And I'm fascinated in this because it's such an important thing. It shows how government can help people. We beyond take it for granted. I think most of us don't know that government played a role. Could you tell me what the issue was at the time and how the Carter administration came to affect that issue? Sure. The president made energy, Mike, his number one domestic priority when he came into office because of our growing dependence on OPEC oil. And so he put in place three major energy bills in four years. The first was the most difficult, and it was the deregulation of natural gas. And what happened as a result is emblematic of so much of what I write about in this book, and that is it led to the explosion of production domestically of both crude oil and natural gas. It's one of the reasons, Mike, that we enjoy energy security and less dependence on OPEC today than we did then. So it was bloody, it was difficult, but it was successful, and as a result, natural gas now flows, which it did not, from the producing states to the consuming states. For example, if you were a producer in Texas, you could get full market prices if you sold your gas within Texas, but try to sell it to Michigan. And once it crossed the state lines, it was controlled by the federal government at pennies to the dollar. He wanted something like smart deregulation that could help all the stakeholders. But it also seemed that it was, that's what everyone says they want, but it also seemed that it was possible then in a way it's not now. Yeah, so let, let's contrast it with the, the so-called deregulation of President Trump. First of all, Mike, we appointed to all the regulatory agencies, the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, 
we appointed pro-consumer advocates, in fact, many drawn from Ralph Nader's, Nader's Raiders. We didn't appoint, as today, industry stalwarts or those who have lobbied for industry to regulate the industries from which they came. The Trump administration is applying deregulation to the environment. Carter was, and I make the case, the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. We took on water projects which were environmentally damaging. We in, we enhanced the Endangered Species Act, and most particularly, Mike, we literally doubled the size of the entire national park system that Teddy Roosevelt had created by the Alaska Lands Bill, which the whole delegation, Democratic and Republican, wanted open the whole state for oil and gas exploration. He appointed also, and this would be very interesting, I think, to your listeners, Mike, he appointed, here's a southern president, yeah. more minorities and women to judgeships and senior positions than all 38 presidents before him put together. He was a great champion for inclusion, not for pitting, as we see today, one group against the other. He supported affirmative action for universities and women. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is quoted in the book, as she is in the RBG documentary that people have seen, as saying, I would not be on the Supreme Court had Jimmy Carter not opened the judicial system to women. Now, the second thing, the second major area that I wanted to ask you about is is the White House, is your White House's relationship with special prosecutors. Because I was just two weeks ago researching uh, Brett Kavanaugh and his uh, stance on the law that created the special prosecutor, I think it's called Morrison, and we went through instances where special prosecutors were used. And I did not remember or realize that there was a special prosecutor, special counsel, who was looking at members, key members of your administration for allegedly doing cocaine at Studio 54. Can you take me through learning about that and what the heck was going on? I'm really glad you mentioned it because one of the reasons that Carter won the election in 1976 against Gerald Ford is the reaction to Watergate, Mike. And so he pledged, I'll never lie to you. I'll have an open and transparent government. And this was not just rhetoric. All the ethics bills we passed are still in place. The 1978 Ethics Act, for example, required the disclosure of assets going in, gift limits when you're in office, restrictions on lobbying going out. And, as you mentioned, we created the Office of Special Counsel. Now, here's the big difference between what happened then and today with Mueller. So Mueller is there because of our law. It was designed to have an independent special counsel to investigate potential wrongdoing by the highest officials in government. So who was the first target, as you suggested? It was none other than President Carter's chief of staff, Hamilton Jordan. A special counsel was created to investigate him. A million dollars of legal fees out of his own pocket later at the time we were running for re-election in 1980 and diverting him. Right. So Ham wound up being uh, exonerated 24 to 0 by a grand jury. And Walter Cronkite called what happened to him the, you know, baseless charges, the worst story he ever broadcast. But was it ever considered, um, here's what we have to do to fight back. Here's what we have to do to win the war of public opinion. Here's the extrajudicial steps we have to take for political reasons. No, Mike, and that's the great contrast between Jimmy Carter as president and our current incumbent because he did not try to undermine it. He did not try to subvert it. He did not try to go around it with leaks. He let it take its course as painful as it was for us, and that's what the rule of law should all be about. 
The impression I get from the book and readings before it, but definitely in the book, as we talk about his instincts and maybe his unwillingness to compromise a horse trade, is something like this. A lot of people look at doing the right thing or look at virtue in terms of the big picture. Virtue is if I do what needs to be done within bounds in order to get to a virtuous outcome. But it seems to me that Jimmy Carter defined virtue as being virtuous in each and every moment. And therefore, compromise was seen to him uh, differently than it's seen to a lot of politicians. Yes, I made this case. In fact, One of the reasons people don't realize we got 70% of our legislation passed is because he had great difficulty in compromising what he thought was the morally right thing to do and in convincing people that getting half a loaf he had actually won rather than lost. Mm -hmm. This was somebody who was very, very religious but in a social gospel sense and not trying to impose that religion on others. And my book is not just about Carter. It's about the presidency itself and about the 1970s, it was the rise, Mike, of the consumer movement, the environmental movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, and after Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, Carter supported, it was the rise of the pro-life movement and ultimately of the evangelical movement, of which he was distinctly not a part. They targeted him and supported Reagan, who uh, had hardly ever gone to church. Yeah. Do you think that there was anything you could have done to win the 1980 election? Yes. Um, Look, if we hadn't had the humiliating 444-day episode with Ayatollah Khomeini, I think we could have won the election. Yeah. Now, what could he have done? First of all, it was the greatest intelligence failure, in my opinion, in American history. The CIA not realizing the Shah of Iran, our great ally, had feet of clay that his support had evaporated not realizing remarkably, Mike, that for five years he was being given secretly treatment for an incurable form of cancer. What I recommended and what Dr. Brzezinski, his national security advisor, recommended immediately after the hostages were taken is military action, not bombing, but mining the harbors outside of Karg Island where 60% of all Iran's oil went to demonstrate that we were going to choke their economy if they didn't release our hostages. Instead, in a humanitarian gesture, but one I think ended up really humiliating the country and himself, he said to the hostage families, my first priority is getting the hostage out safe and sound. And he did, but at huge cost. He then holed himself up in the White House showing that he was working full-time on it, making himself a hostage. And then what happened is at 3 o'clock in the morning on the Friday night, Saturday morning before the election on Tuesday, we got a call. president wants to leave and go back to Washington. There's a new offer from Iran. And I said, no, don't leave because that will simply cause more attention to be uh, focused on it. Look at the offer. You'll see that it's not satisfactory. It's positive movement, but it's not enough to end the crisis. He insisted on going back. It brought the whole hostage crisis back to people's minds again as a central feature. And Pat Cadell, our pollster, just said the polls just totally bottomed out at that yeah. point. A- again, acting virtuously in the moment because he couldn't not, but not having his eye on the big picture, maybe. Exactly. Strategically. So, so much of what was done is just forgotten. And that's one of the reasons I've written the book. It's not to gloss over the problems we had, which I call the four eyes, Iran, inflation, inexperience of himself and the Georgia mafia, and inter-party warfare. 
I tackle those directly. I'm very candid about them. But they've obscured, Mike, so much of what he accomplished. And I wanted to set out in this book before it was too late, before there were no eyewitnesses, before history's verdict was sort of indelibly sealed, that this was not a failed presidency. It was a significant presidency, an accomplished presidency, with problems, yes, but one which achieved an enormous amount. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. Well, Stuart Eisenstadt is the man who tried to fight those four eyes, although Eisenstadt is with an E, so maybe he was overmatched. <laughs> President Carter, The White House Years is the book, and Stuart Eisenstadt is one of those longtime Washington wise men and hands who was essential to uh, several administrations. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book as well. And now the spiel. I was in the movie theater the other day. There are only two types of movies I go to see. Giant action spectaculars, where actually being in a huge theater with way too loud noise and possible 3D makes sense. Or tiny, tiny, beady, deepy, weedy independent films where my going to the theater actually has such a large impact on the bottom line that I feel like I'm directly donating to the arts. So given the trailer I am about to tell you about, I happen to remember which movie it was that I was seeing. Before this movie, an advertisement comes on and we see Saoirse Ronan. She's playing this repressed English girl who seems to woo or have been wooed by a commoner. What does his father do? You mean is he working class or one of us? That's more or less what I mean. You don't seem quite as happy as you should. Something's bothering you, Flo. And in this movie, which is called On Chesil Beach, based on the Ian McEwan novel, we see from the trailer, it's set in the past, maybe the 1950s, there's some angst about a sexual liaison, class is invoked, and then we see on the screen, during the musical interludes, quotes from reviewers. And one says, entrancing. Saoirse Ronan is remarkable. And another one says, Billy Howley and Saoirse Ronan deliver show-stopping performances. Those, to me, are the kind of pull quotes, are the kind of advertising enticements that would possibly convince one to come to this movie. As I said, it, this is not before Infinity Wars. This is probably before the, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. But then it happens. Then these words come on the screen as an inducement, as an enticement, as a way to get people to come to the theater. Two words attributed to the Hollywood Reporter and the words on the screen describing this movie, which I'd like to see. I, I liked Atonement, the last Ian McEwan movie. I liked An Education, small movies about the human condition, very realistic. You could get into the characters, possibly set in the past. I was primed until I saw these two words on the screen. Exquisitely delicate. Exquisitely delicate. Who are the people that were on the fence until they heard, oh, well, it seems to be show-stopping and enticing and entrancing. I didn't know it was exquisitely delicate. 
I had planned to be pressing wildflowers into my notebooks that Thursday evening, but perhaps I will go see on Chisel Beach as it is exquisitely delicate. Or maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe those people were already on board and the people who were really roped in by the claim of exquisite delicacies are these two guys. Angelo, you want to go see uh, on Chesil Beach? Yeah, I don't know, Vinny. What, uh, what do you hear about it? I hear it's exquisitely delicate. I'm in. Now, the reason that I was uh, doing that accent just now is I've been pondering and thinking the fate of local sports radio host Joe Benigno. And Joe Benigno is a guy from WFAN who was a caller to WFAN, and they had a contest like 20 years ago, do you want to be a host? And he either won or came in third in the contest, then he sent himself to finishing school, an exquisitely delicate finishing school for radio, and he's been on the radio blathering about being a long-suffering Jets fan for 20 years. And he's been embroiled in a lawsuit and a scandal. I will read the headline. This is Fox News' coverage of it. Sports radio host Joe Benigno pressured female staffer to have threesomes with his wife and a prostitute, lawsuit claims. It goes on on various occasions. WFAN host Joe Benigno pressured this uh, former employee into having a threesome. Benigno whispered in her ear about having threesomes with him and his wife and prostitutes, the suit claims. Could we do the math on this? That wouldn't be a threesome. In fact, given the S after prostitute and that it's plural, it would at least be a fivesome, wouldn't it? Well, that's okay. With the goalie, maybe a sixsome. And it would be a shame if Joe Benigno had to pull the goalie alone. Here's a little bit of what the real Joe Benigno sounds like. Second semifinal game in the World Cup today, Croatia and England. They, the winner of that game will play France on Sunday in Moscow or in, in Russia for the World Cup. And joining us right now is uh, Grant Wall of uh, Sports Illustrated, Fox Sports TV, Planet Football Podcast, and SI. Joe Benigno's a guy who, I don't know, spent maybe 40 cumulative hours of his professional life decrying the fact that Shaquille O'Neal never improved on his free throws in the offseason. And yet... His accent is exactly as it was when he was Joe from Saddle River making those calls to WFAN. Oh, what about the Jets? Walt Michaels, what's with this guy? And he has this tick of calling everyone bro. I don't know, bro. What do you say, bro? But the idea of having Joe Benigno ever approach anyone, and it's wrong, and if it really happened, it shouldn't have been in the workplace, and the workplace seems, or according to this lawsuit, seemed like a frat house, and I decry all of that. But the specifics of Joe Benigno doing the approaching, it's just, it's chilled me. I haven't been the same since I heard that story. I think it might go something like this. Okay, Joe Benigno here, Mrs. Benigno here. Joining us now, Connie from Sales. Connie joining us on the Subway Fresh Hotline. And hot it is and hot you are. Connie, I promise you a disappointment that you may not have felt since the 2004 AFC Championship game in Pittsburgh. Connie, the bliss, I promise you, the bliss that you... Oh, no, bro, bro, you got to move the runner over. Sorry about that, Connie. Connie, as I was saying... You got to duck into my boudoir with the tantalizing prospect of, can you get this guy out? It is your job. Why do we pay you? Sorry, Connie, we're up against the break here. But as I was saying, please join me, my wife, a prostitute, and at the bottom of the hour, Jets special teams coach Mike Westhoff. Back after this. 
The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who point out if you don't rig your witch hunt, you are never going to find a witch, right? I mean, or another way to look at it, all witch hunts are rigged if they show a witch. What I'm saying is witches aren't real. Got to do some rigging. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's worried about the wigged rich hunt. All these financiers in toupees being hunted for sport. It's not right. The gist, I am considering purchasing a true TV adult male romper because of the craftsmanship. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>